Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We're coming to you today from San Antonio, Texas, where we've been involved with the Evangelical Theological Society. That's an annual meeting of scholars in New Testament theology and church history and all the theological disciplines. We meet once a year. It's a wonderful time for meeting old friends and networking with scholars. And I have the pleasure today of talking to one of the speakers at this conference, a friend of ours for a long time, Dr. Karen Jobes. Karen, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Well, thank you, Dr. George. It's a, it's a pleasure and privilege to be here. Now, I want to tell people just a little bit about your academic work and background, and then I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and in particular tell us how you came to faith in Christ. I think people will find that a fascinating story. Karen Jobes is Professor Emerita of New Testament Greek and Greek exegesis at Wheaton College. She was the Gerald F. Hawthorne Professor of New Testament Greek and Exegesis. For those of you who don't know that name, Dr. Hawthorne was one of the great scholars of biblical studies, taught at Wheaton for many years. Before that, she taught at Westmont College in California and also a Westminster Theological Seminary in, in Philadelphia. So she's, she has made the rounds, as we say, in a lot of important academic evangelical institutions. She's a wonderful scholar, written a number of books. We're going to talk about some of those today. But let's begin, Karen, by asking you just to say a little bit about your own background and how you came to faith in, in Jesus Christ. Well, I came to faith in Christ uh, as an made an adult commitment to faith in Christ uh, between my junior and senior years of college, and I'll let you guess how many years ago that was, <laughs> but uh, we're counting decades at this point. Uh, when two friends became Christian, and they gave me two things to read over the summer break. One was a copy of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, and the other was a track that contained the Gospel of John, which happened to be in the then-new translation of the NIV. So over the summer, I read Hal Lindsey's uh, book, and that kind of put the fear of God in me, <laughs> because that was a book about uh, the return of Christ and the end of time as we know it, that he believed would happen sometime in the very near future, in the 80s, perhaps. Mm. And... Then the Gospel of John reminded me that, that Jesus loves me. And so it was a combination of those ideas uh, that led me to an adult commitment to faith in Christ. Now, since then, I, I, I no longer uh, follow Hal Lindsey's way of interpreting the Bible. But uh, I often think how it's wonderful that God can use even a crooked stick in our lives to mm. uh, do his perfect purposes so I'm thankful uh, for that. Uh, but the Gospel of John remains at the top of my favorite mm -hmm. New Testament book lists, and I'm actually about to launch on writing commentary oh, on John's Gospel, so I'm looking forward to that work. John is my favorite Gospel, too. I mean, it, it just draws you in, doesn't it? It's mm -hmm. powerful and colorful and uh, it makes you fall in love with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think it does, it does in a wonderful way. Well, you know, you have an interesting background in that you, you didn't really begin your academic work in biblical studies. Uh, you worked in physics 
and computer science. We don't always think of those as good preparatory disciplines for doing the kind of work you've done. Tell us about that transition. Well, from a very early age, I was just in love with physics and astrophysics in particular. I, I had hoped to uh, go on and get a PhD in astrophysics and work in that field. And so when I got to college, I decided to major in physics, minor in math. And then uh, after college, you know, life happens and bills to pay and all of that. So I got a job doing computer programming at a physics lab, Princeton University's plasma physics lab, which was a great opportunity mm. as I look back on it. And decided, uh, because I had no formal training in computer science, that I would go and get a, a master's degree in computer science from Rutgers University. And so I worked for about 12 years uh, in the field of scientific computer programming. During that time, uh, my church invited me to teach adult Sunday school. And I started teaching books of the Bible and very, very quickly realized two things. Firstly, there was so much I did not know about the Bible, about the history and how to interpret it. And I just felt like I really wanted a deeper understanding. Uh, and secondly, I realized that I was enjoying preparing and studying and teaching uh, the Bible even more than I was enjoying uh, my job working as a, in scientific computing. So after a Actually, a couple of years it took my husband and I to pray through and process uh, what we felt the Lord was uh, nudging us to. I, I quit my job and started my work on a master's in biblical studies at Westminster Theological Seminary, thinking that I would probably just get my master's and go back into computing and be a better Sunday school teacher and have more personal edification and knowledge of Scripture. Uh, but the Lord had a different plan. I'm glad I didn't know all of it at the time. I would have been too uh, intimidated to probably continue, but uh, it was while I was at Westminster that the Lord began to develop in me a vision for teaching in a Christian college or seminary and go on for my PhD. And that was affirmed by my professors and my pastor. And so uh, I ended up getting a PhD, but not in astrophysics. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, studying God's special revelation in Scripture and studying His general revelation in the universe satisfies a similar kind of need in our hearts, I think. so. Yeah. You know, the med medieval theology talked about the two books, mm. the book of nature, the book of revelation, yes. and that they are to be read in tandem, yes. one with another. So there's a long history of people doing what you've done. Yeah, and I've never found that science and faith are, you know, at, at, at its root, uh, antithetical. I, I think that, uh, in fact, thinking to learn to think scientifically and to think theologically often engage in very fruitful ways. Now, I think I first got to know you well when you gave some lectures at Beeson some years ago on the book of First Peter. You were mm -hmm. writing a commentary at the time was. on First Peter, and you gave these wonderful lectures, very amazing, scintillating uh, discussion of that text. Uh, now, that's been some years ago, but uh, I remember a lot of that was what I would call deeply exegetically textured. It was, you were delving into the text and finding insights there that a surface reading may, may not easily present. Mm. Could you say a little bit about exegesis itself? A lot of mm. your work is exegetically focused mm -hmm. and driven. What is exegesis? And then if you want to, tell us if, what, what First Peter is about. Okay, thank you. Well... You know, exegesis is, is involving a very close reading of the biblical texts in the original languages. 
And that involves um, understanding the genres, the ancient genres of how they functioned in the cultures from which they were, were written. Uh, it involves understanding the, the language of, of Hebrew and Greek, the syntax, and how to understand the text at a very detailed level. And so that's always been a great joy of mine. My, my mind tends to work more analytically than synthetically, so when I had to choose between exegesis and theology, I thought I would do a better job uh, with exegesis. And it was a real joy to, to write uh, now a couple of different exegetical commentaries, but in First Peter, there were, there were a couple of things that surprised me. You know, because we, we all know, we think we, we think we know a book of the Bible because we've read it in English many times and heard sermons and so forth. But firstly, First Peter is not, or was not at that time, preached on in the American church as much as it is in some other countries. And secondly, by taking this very slow, detailed analysis of the text, I learned a couple of things that have, have really stayed with me. Peter writes to us in the framework of being exiles and foreigners. And, you know, in our society, as I've gotten older, it seems like more and more I feel like a stranger in my own country. <laughs> so I think that is a theme that's going to resonate with more Americans as we go forward than perhaps American Christians as we go forward than uh, it has in the past. But, uh, you know, when we think about Jesus and the heart of the gospel, uh, throughout church history, there's been debates as to what is really the true significance of the Incarnation. And some people would say, well, he was a great moral teacher, his parables, he teaches us how to live. We have a lot of common ground with other world religions because of that, perhaps. But for Peter, and I'm finding, like for the writer of Hebrews and other books of the New Testament, Jesus' words are important, mm -hmm. and they are instructive. But for Peter, the heart of the Christian gospel is Jesus' death on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Mm -hmm. A very emphatic repetition of that in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter quotes from the suffering servant song of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And he quotes from it the Greek translation mm -hmm. of the Old Testament. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Isaiah 53 already has built into it an amplification of the theme of atonement. And that translation was produced by Jewish translators centuries before Jesus was born. So that's interesting. And he picks up on that theme of atonement. And he says, this is really the heart of, of what the significance of Jesus Christ is, his redemptive death on the cross. And then in that same passage... And he says, to bear up under unjust suffering, mm. to, to bear up suffering for doing good, to this you were called. And when I read that, I had to step away from my writing for a month or two because it was such a startling idea to me. You know, mm. I, I had the uh, thought, I think, that uh, Jesus suffered so we don't have to. And here Peter was saying exactly the opposite thing. Because Jesus suffered, he left an example for us to follow in his footsteps. So that got me thinking about, you know, how, how would this play out in our own lives? Because fortunately, um, many of us in North America have lived in a society where we're not really suffering uh, in, in serious 
uh, persecution for, for our faith, as some Christians are around the world. And the biggest takeaway for my own life in terms of application of 1 Peter is that the message is it is better to suffer than to sin. That's how we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I had previously thought that the temptation of sin was pleasure or satisfaction of some kind. And after studying 1 Peter, I've come to think that actually the power of sin over us is that we want to avoid suffering. So, you know, when maybe we'll tell a lie because we don't want to suffer the consequences of the truth, or, or maybe uh, a student will cheat on an exam because they don't want to suffer failure. So it's that avoidance of suffering. So those two aspects, the, the atonement at the heart of the gospel and uh, the Christian's call to suffer rather than to sin would be the two biggest takeaways I found in First Peter. Now you mentioned uh, the Greek Old Testament text that First Peter picks mm-hmm. up. And, of course, other places in the New Testament also quote this document we call the Septuagint. Um, You've studied the Septuagint. Uh, It's one of your major uh, emphasis in scholarship. Tell us a little bit about what it is, how it came to be written, and how it functions in the New Testament. Well, the Septuagint is a very uh, fascinating document and a part of our Christian heritage, even as Protestant Christians. Uh, The Septuagint is an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It began to be produced, we think, about two and a half, three centuries before the birth of Christ in Alexandria, Egypt. And the first part of the project was uh, to produce a translation of the Pentateuch. It was probably the first major translation from one language into another that ever happened in the world. Then as as other books of the Old Testament were translated into Greek, by extension they came to be called the Septuagint as well. Now the the word Septuagint is uh, derived from the Latin word for the numeral 70, Septuaginta, and the reason for that is the tradition is that the Pentateuch was originally translated by 70 or maybe 72 translators. We have this, both numbers in the traditional stories of how the translation was produced. And this was done in Alexandria by Alexandria, tradition? Alexandria, mm-hmm. Egypt. Where there was yeah. a strong Jewish community. Very large Jewish population living in diaspora outside mm-hmm. of the Holy Land. So uh, that makes a lot of sense because Jews living in the Greek-speaking culture after a generation or two could not fluently read the Hebrew text and... Um, The Septuagint came to be the Old Testament used by uh, Diaspora Judaism. Uh, It's really important for us uh, as Christians, I think primarily in in one way because the New Testament writers, they're writing in Greek, their their, uh, books and letters, and they want to quote scripture, they would naturally quote the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation that was available to them at that time. So we find in New Testament exegesis how important it is to look at and to understand the translation of the Hebrew into Greek as part of the exegetical process in the New Testament. And there, there are other you know, things. It gives us a glimpse into how uh, Jewish translators understood the Hebrew text, because all translation has a bit of interpretation in it. 
um, it gives us a glimpse at the, the Hebrew text that was used for the basis of translation and how that compares to the Hebrew text we have today. So there are many, many fascinating aspects to Septuagint studies. I have a hard question for you. Is, this, <laughs> is the Septuagint inspired? It, is it the divine word of God? I mean, especially when it's quoted in the New Testament, mm. which we certainly believe is the divine word of God. Right. Answer that question if you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I think Protestant doctrine of Scripture does not uh, permit any translation to be considered as inspired. Uh, certainly providentially guided by the Spirit, and, and God can use even bad translations to uh, for His purposes. Um, but that throughout church history has been uh, debated. Uh, Augustine, for instance, St. Augustine, believed that both the Hebrew text and the Greek translation known as the Septuagint and only that Greek translation were in fact both inspired by God. Um, and he and Jerome got into quite a bit of an argument about that and Jerome uh, did not buy into the inspiration of the Septuagint and he uh, translated his Vulgate from the Hebrew text. Uh, but of course even today uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity does rely heavily on the Septuagint as their canonical text. So as Protestants, we, we don't accept the inspiration of the Septuagint, but even so, I think we can uh, respect it and appreciate it uh, in ways greater than most of us have being brought up in the Protestant uh, church. And you've written a book about uh, the Septuagint, Discovering the Septuagint, a Guided Reader, uh, would you recommend that book to Bible students generally? If they can read Greek, yes. Mm -hmm. um, actually, we, I have two books uh, published on Septuagint. One was written with uh, Dr. Moises Silva, Invitation to the Septuagint. And a large part of that book is for people who don't read Greek or Hebrew and mm -hmm. who want a more general introduction to the Septuagint, as well as a large part of it there for, for uh, people who do appreciate the Greek and Hebrew uh, languages. But um, the, the book that you've just referenced is my most recent book that came out last spring, and it's intended to help students, particularly who've had a couple of semesters of New Testament Greek, uh, take that next step into reading the Septuagint, which is a larger corpus of material and has a vastly greater vocabulary than mm. we learn in New Testament Greek. And so it's a selection of Greek Old Testament text from nine books of the Old Testament, uh, presented with vocabulary definitions and syntactical glosses and explanations, a little bit of historical background that would help the reader uh, who wants to get into the reading the Septuagint actually have an aid and a resource that would guide them. Yes, and so the two books, uh, the more basic one is called Invitation to the Septuagint. And that would be, if, if you're not a particular reader of Greek or Hebrew, that, that would be a good introduction for you. And then for those who can deal with the Greek a little bit, uh, discovering the Septuagint. Right. Mm -hmm. So, wonderful. Now, um, I want to ask you about what you're doing now and what you plan to do. You, you, you told me, I think, before we uh, began the podcast that you're starting to work on the Gospel of John. Mm. I was glad to hear that. That's my favorite Gospel, John. 
what's interesting to you about John? Mm. Well, you know, I, I uh, do have a commentary out on John's letters, and so it seems that going from there to John's gospel was the next logical step. I, I think partly because John's gospel was so instrumental in bringing me to faith in Christ mm. as an adult, that's always had a very, very special place in my heart. I'm fascinated by the structure of John's gospel, the seven I am statements and um, the seven signs, and how to really understand them as signs, we need to get into the Old Testament background of those. Mm. And so that always excites me because I love both the Old and New Testaments. Um, and the very, very high Christology mm. of John uh, and the way he presents Jesus as God. And yet he has to solve this really difficult problem of um, being a, a Jewish man and how do you present Jesus as God and uphold the doctrine of monotheism? Mm. So that's the theme that I want to really explore more deeply in John's Gospel, is how does this Trinitarian God, um, even though that word's not used in John's Gospel or in, in the New Testament, how does John present that concept to his readers while still uh, affirming and upholding the doctrine that there is only, you know, one God. So I'm, I'm looking forward to what I'll learn there. It's wonderful. I'll look forward to your commentary. I'm going to ask you one more question because you mentioned, I think you did, when you were talking about how you came to faith in Christ, that it was the NIV, the newly, yes. at that time, newly translated New International Version. Of course, since then, the NIV has been revised, and you've been a part of the uh, Committee on Bible Translation for the New International Version. Just give us a little update on the NIV, how, how, what's happened to it since you first read it uh, in terms of the revision, and uh, how it's doing today as a Bible translation. Mm. Well, you know, I, I consider my work on the NIV translation one of God's great providences in my life. The, uh, the privilege of having uh, come to Christ through reading the NIV translation of John decades ago, and then finding myself on the, the, the translation committee many years later uh, has, has always been a very meaningful uh, thing to me, and I'm grateful to God. Uh, the CBT, the Committee on Bible Translation, is a committee of 15 biblical scholars, both Old and New Testaments. Since I came onto the committee in 1996, we're not doing a new translation, of course. We are revising and updating the existing NIV, and our revision came out in 2011. And there, there are two reasons where we need to, to do updating. Uh, one is we do learn new things about the, the culture in which the New Testament and Old Testaments were written, the different ancient cultures and archaeological finds and uh, lexical studies. So there is scholarship, in other words, that we have now that we didn't have uh, as accessible. The Dead Sea Scrolls, one example. So we always want to make sure that we present the best understanding of God's Word, of what it meant in the time it was written. And then um, English language changes mm. so quickly, and even more so now that English is kind of the language of the, of the Internet and, and the uh, World Wide Web. And so we want to make sure that the words we use to translate that original meaning of God's Word into our culture today are not misleading in any way or undignified or unworthy of God's Word. 
So that's the work of the committee. And we, we meet now once a year for about a week. We collect proposals from pastors, lay people who send us ideas. Uh, we generate proposals ourselves from writing our commentaries and other monographs and articles. And um, the committee gets these proposals in advance and studies them. And then when we get together, we discuss them and vote whether or not we want to incorporate them in what will be the next release of the NIV. We're not sure exactly when that will happen, but these revisions take many years. It's not something you can sit down in one session and, and, and do very well. So, uh, you know, maybe 10 years cycle mm. at, at uh, least to go through and to do a revision. Great. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Professor Karen Jobes, who taught for many years at Wheaton College and before that at Westmont College, a wonderful biblical scholar, uh, Septuagint scholar, uh, writing now a Gospel of John commentary. Dr. Jobes, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.